Hi, good morning. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Jimmy, and I've been a member here for about, uh, well, not a member yet, but I've been coming here for about three and a half years. <laughs> I'd like to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us uh, here and online this morning. Since 1870, UUWASA has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people, just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are in life's journey, you are welcome here. Uh, we are currently worshiping both in person and online, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter and follow us on Facebook and Instagram for updates. So we have a few announcements this morning. Uh, we'd like to thank the UUWASA members and friends near and far We've raised $6,560 in only a week for the newly arrived Afghan family. A check for that amount has been delivered to EDCD, Multicultural Community Center. Funds beyond what that family will need goes toward helping another new family get settled in our community. Generosity abounds, so thank you all to have helped out. Uh, be sure to check out the white page in your order of worship for upcoming youth group events including one that's taking place this afternoon. And now I'd like to welcome Roxanne Borneman, who has an announcement. I have an important announcement. This relates to the Afghani refugees. They are currently receiving their English classes and their cultural awareness classes at the Methodist Church. And those classes are taking place Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays and childcare is needed. The families come in, they leave their children in a childcare setting, and then they go off for an hour and a half to classes. So if you have an interest in an availability, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday mornings from 9.30 until 10.45, on any of those days, please get in contact with myself, Barb Drake or Donica of your interest, and we could give you more information. You will need to have a background check done. So we need childcare providers so that the adults can be in their classes undistracted um, and not jumping up to take care of their kids. So if you have an interest in little ones, please get in touch with us. Thank you. Thank you, Roxanne. And with that, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting that you'll find the words printed in the order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Please rise in spirit or body and join in singing our opening hymn in the Teal Hymn Book, number 1008, when our heart is in a holy place.
standing and join me in reciting the church's affirmation. The words are in your order of worship. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve human need, to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other. Our doxology. have a seat. So our story this morning takes place and occurs primarily around a character by the name of Stephanie. One day Stephanie found out that she was sick. She found out that she might not ever recover from this particular kind of illness. This is something that she would end up living with for the rest of her life. Her friends, as often is the case, because people are complicated, when we find out our friends are sick, sometimes we don't know what to say. And so we choose to stay away. But three of Stephanie's friends did show up. One was a minister, one was a magician, and one was a doctor. This isn't turning into a bar joke, so pay attention. (laughs) They all went into Stephanie's room, and she was there in a room playing video games or whatever kids do, and they all sat around her, and the physician said, Stephanie, I'm going to go to my office, and I'm going to get in my laboratory, and I'm going to do everything I can to find a cure for this sickness. And the minister said, Stephanie, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to my church and I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask my congregation to pray and we're going to pray that you are healed. And the magician says, I'm going to consult magical texts that go back to the alts and I'm going to find a spell that I can cast that eradicates this illness from your body and everybody else's body who has it. And so the doctor went to her office and worked in the laboratory. The minister prayed in his church, and the magician consulted all the ancient texts. 
At the end of many months and a lot of hard work, they all got back together and they all shared the difficult news. The magician said, I found nothing. The minister said, I've heard she still has this illness. And the doctor said, I found no cure. They said, well, we have to tell her. So they went to her house, and they gathered around her once again, and they said, Stephanie, I'm sorry. I don't think my prayers can heal you. And the doctor said, I don't think my medicine can heal you. And the magician said, I don't think there's a spell I can cast that will cure you. They all sat in silence for a few moments. And Stephanie said, that's okay. Because you're here, you showed up. And you love me. And you keep loving me. The point of this story, if I can be so bold as to tell you the point of this story, is that a community takes everyone. It takes everyone even when it exhausts our own knowledge and our own abilities, even whenever we have exhausted other people with our own weaknesses and our own faults. It takes all of us to keep coming together, even when the news is bad, even when the prognosis is bad, so that we can collectively hold the hope and love each other. That's our story for all ages this morning. Children are welcome to go down to their classroom if they haven't gone down there already. And please join me in singing the children's song. The words are in the order of worship. The mission and ministry of UUWASA is made possible by the generous support of its friend and members. Rather than pass a plate at this time, uh, we place an offering basket in the back of the sanctuary for you to drop a gift in. You can also stop by our website, uuwasa.org, to make a one-time or recurring gift with your credit or debit card. At this time, I'd like to welcome up Chang, who's a member of um, a Wasa Women's Organization and Children's Organization, and he helps um, kids be kids. So, Cheng, please come on up. Good morning. All right, y'all sound a whole lot livelier than my church. <laughs> Every time I say good morning, they're like, good morning. I'm like, y'all sound like y'all are dead or just waking up. But uh, like what Jimmy says, I am from the women's community. We are located over to the right side by the big Aspirus Hospital. Um, I was invited here thanks to one of our lovely volunteers, Joyce. Uh, she's a great, great volunteer over there. I hope she will never leave. Um, yeah, um, but one of my main role in the women's communities, I am the children's advocate. Uh, I do help kids be kids because a lot of times the kids that go through a lot of the kids that enter into our shelter or a building, they go 
they have seen a lot of um, craziness in their life. Uh, things that they shouldn't have been experiencing at such a little age. Um, so I help them to be kids. I help them to cope with a lot of the things they deal with. And one of the great things in my role is I always call myself the fun guy. I get to take these kids out into to the movies. Uh, I help take kids to the park. I do lots of arts and crafts with them. And at the same time, I do a lot of play therapy. Uh, I do therapy games to help them understand their emotions and their anger and what's going on in their life. And just and aside from that, I also go to the schools. I go to the Wausau School Districts. I go from the elementary school all the way up to the high school. So I teach uh, a lot of these kids how to understand traumas, understand a lot of crisis that goes on to their life. So that's what my role is at the women's community. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's great. Uh, I, got a, I got one story to share. Um, so last year, a coworker and I, we throughout the whole summer, we planned uh, a lot of fun, exciting events, outings for the kids. And so in the car ride to the movie theaters, um, I had a group of kids with me. I work with a big diverse, diversity of kids. And so these are elementary school kids, and they were so excited to go to the theater. We were going to go watch Boss Baby 2. So they were so excited. They were like, I'm going to go to the movies. I was like, yes, you are. <laughs> and one of the kids like, said to the other kid, how many times have you gone to the movies? And I'm like, this is my second time. And the crazy thing is some of these kids have never been to the movies. Because in their background, they deal a lot with poverty. So they never been to the movies. We got to the movies. I'm like, all right, it's Tuesday. It's free popcorn. Y'all have to get a bag of popcorn. They're like, for real? It's free? I'm like, yes, it's free. And then I'm like, y'all can order anything y'all want. Y'all see ice cream. There's candies. There's kind candies. They're like, anything? I'm like, Yes. So they were super excited, super pumped. Um, after the movie was done, they were like, it was so awesome. I want to go again, Mr. Chain. When is the next movie trip? I'm like, uh, just, just slow down a little bit. Just enjoy the moment. And so those are the great, fun, exciting things I get to do with the kids and help kids to be kids. So thank you. Thank you for having me here. Thank you, Chang. Um, our uh, gift today will be going toward uh, Chang's organization and helping out the kids. So thank you. Thank you so much.
I'd like to invite everyone to join me in a spirit of prayer and meditation. As always, I invite you to center yourself. You can start by putting your feet flat and firm on the ground. Let us start with a scan of our bodies. Feel the air on the top of your head. And as you take a breath, let it go deep into your stomach. Notice your beating heart. Become aware of the energy provided by the people who this morning make our congregation. Notice any aches and pains, any weight on your shoulders. And let us journey into silence with a prayer. O loving compassion, we are called to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate us, bless those who curse us, and pray for those who abuse us. We know so many places where pain and suffering are overwhelming. And when we contemplate our call to care even for those who seem to be the sources of that pain, the task seems more than we can bear. Spirit of compassionate self-giving, help us grow into useful parts of your healing, loving body here on earth. Hear now our prayers for those who suffer for those in grief and need, and for ourselves. Dear friends, I invite you to call into your mind all the joys and sorrows in your lives, and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please remain seated for our prayer hymn number 108, My Life Flows On an Endless Song.
morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew, beginning in the sixth chapter at the 22nd verse. So bear in mind that at this point in Jesus's life and his ministry, he was an itinerant rabbi traveling around preaching and teaching to these small sects of Jewish people who are interested in hearing what this untrained dude from a backwater had to say that was causing such a stir throughout the Fertile Crescent. So listen to this story with curious eyes, excitement, someone who's saying something that no one else has said before, and you're alone with all these other people who you don't really know, and you're listening to this person teach out in the wide open. Here's what he said. He said, congregation, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, that darkness will be great. Also, congregation, know that no one can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. In other words, you cannot serve God and wealth at the same time. And so therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink. Don't worry about your body, what you will wear. Is your life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet our heavenly God feeds them. Are you not of more value than those birds? And can any of you, by worrying, add even a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about your clothing? Why don't you consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, and how they neither toil 
nor spin. And yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these little flowers. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is brown into the oven, will God not much more clothe you, you often of little faith? And so therefore, do not worry. Do not worry and say what you will eat or what will we drink or what will we wear. For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things, and indeed your heavenly God knows that you need all these things. But strive therefore for the kingdom of God and for righteousness. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. There it ends our reading.
And I must admit that this morning's sermon, I've preached sermons like this before, but I often say when I preach sermons like this that this is a sermon that I preach that probably feels to visitors or someone who's just been coming to a short while like you just showed up to another family's Thanksgiving dinner. Right, you're going to hear a bunch of names. You don't really know who these people are. You're going to hear all these inside stories, and you're going to go, well, this is really boring. I hope that's not the case. I hope I sort of draw the circle as wide as possibly. But nevertheless, what I thought I would do was continue our theme of thinking about church, specifically through a Unitarian Universalist lens, by looking at and considering the first principle of Unitarian Universalism, which is what? the inherent worth and dignity of every person. It's pretty uncontroversial. I expect nobody in this church would say, I don't believe people have inherent worth and dignity. Maybe if a philosophy professor is here, they might. But most people wouldn't challenge this. So if you bear this in mind, the principles are actually a recent feature to our religious movement. They were first adopted just about 35 years ago in 1985. And I want you to just think about this for perspective. The principles were adopted 115 years after this church had already been established. We've existed most of our life without them. We got on just fine without them. Now, I've known ministers who like to argue that the principles sort of lack a certain theological depth. And so therefore, they kind of refuse to acknowledge them. And I'll admit that I think that there is something worth considering in this argument. But I doubt that the argument would win out in the long run at Wausau or probably at any Unitarian Universalist church because in our churches and the churches that I know and that I've been a part of, the principles serve as sort of a unifying set of moral guides that everybody can kind of rally around in our diversity. Now, it seems to me that the only way that we can reasonably counter the claim that the principles lack depth is to live them, to enact them in the world. Living as though every person has inherent worth and dignity isn't easy. At least it's not easy from my perspective, and especially with headlines like ours. But before we talk about the first principle, I want to take just a very short stroll down memory lane. So recall that the Unitarians merged with the Universalists in 1961 to form the Unitarian Universalist Association, which I'm going to refer to from here on out as the UUA. So for the first 24 years of the UUA's existence, people got on just fine without the principles. I've spent dozens literally dozens, maybe more than dozens of hours in this church's archives. And I paid particularly close attention to the 1950s well into the 1980s when this church was ministered to by classically trained universalist clergy people, two of whom actually served as the last two presidents of the Universalist Church of America. What I can tell you in looking through those archives is I cannot find one shred of documentation that suggests that anyone at UU Wausau desired for the creation of something like the principles. What I can assure you that you will find is you will find record of people who didn't want our church to merge and to join the Unitarian Universalist Association. 
You will also find record of people who wrote the board to express their discontent with some of the political stances this church took, especially in the 1960s. But there isn't any talk about the principles. So given that, I think it's fair to assume that many UUs in those early decades were happy to think of their churches as something like big tents where Christians and humanists could mingle with Buddhists and the like with relatively minimal controversy. Back in those days, one of the popular creeds that people like to say, and they still like to say it today a bit, is deeds, not creeds. That's what we like to say. But clearly, a lot of UUs wanted to craft a set of statements that could speak across theological spectrums. They wanted a set of principles that had some moral grit, but that didn't offend the varied sensibilities in UU churches. So as principled as the principles are, what they've been totally useless at doing is preventing controversies within our movement as a whole, and especially within local congregations. So for instance, one of the enduring questions we have is this. This is a question that UUs have to wrestle with. Are Unitarian Universalists religious liberals or liberal with their religion? Are we religious liberals or are we liberal with religion? I encountered this question years ago in John Burens, who is a UUA president in Forrest Church's book about the history of Unitarian Universalism entitled The Chosen Faith. It's a lovely book. Historically, there was a time when this question was very easy to answer. For Unitarians and Universalists throughout history, they would have had no trouble at all describing their faith and themselves as practitioners of two distinct branches of liberal Christianity. What made us, quote, liberal had a lot to do with our inclusion of the sciences and archaeological discoveries and modern literary methods into the way that we interpreted the Bible and other sacred texts. Now, I am grossly oversimplifying here, and there is a lot more that I could say, and there's a lot more that I have said, but this is an important feature of our faith that sets us apart from other churches, at least in the Protestant mainline. So James Luther Adams, who I like to quote from this pulpit often, he was the leading Unitarian theologian of the 20th century, and he taught at Harvard. So he was essentially giving his knowledge to most of the Unitarian ministers who went out and sort of spread his ideas, right? So JLA, as people like to call him, he wanted to describe Unitarianism as, quote, an examined faith. He even published a book with that title. And what JLA thought was that to have an examined faith, what we all must be willing to doing is exposing our faith to the rigors of science and reason. Now, doing so, the argument goes, it actually serves to expand one's faith because in so doing, what this does is it quiets the risks of supernaturalism. What JLA thought that if you were overly exposed to supernaturalism, what it actually ended up doing was limiting your ability to improvise because it had a narrow road. So one of the cornerstones of our faith that that JLA said, that a lot of Unitarian ministers preached in the beginning and even to the day, is that one of the main cornerstones of our faith is freedom. Freedom to practice your faith as you want to practice it. Now with rare exceptions, science and reason has won the day in our churches. And as a result of the secularizing sway, there are some in our movement who have actually come to lament what they perceive 
as a near total loss of the artistry and the mystery and the liturgies of our historic faith as it was once practiced. And so what underlies this fear is a concern that we are in essence propping up a religion that increasingly looks, talks, and walks a lot like the sensibilities of secular, Euro-American, college-educated, upper-middle-class sensibilities of the people who commonly and statistically represent the people who sit in UU pews. In effect, UUs took the challenge to practice a liberal religion so seriously that we ended up putting religion under so much scrutiny that now, here in the 21st century, people within our walls and beyond now ask aloud, is Unitarian Universalism even a religion any longer? I've got that question many times over the course of my life. And if we are religion, then the question we need to answer is, what do we believe in? And if we aren't religious, then the question is, what will make us relevant? Which brings me to the second half of the original question. Are you used practitioners of a liberal religion, or are we religious liberals? So religious liberalism places the emphasis not on religion, but instead on political liberalism, which begs the question, are you used really just a collection of like-minded political liberals who happen to enjoy going to church? Again, historically, that question was answered with an easy no. We are a church for liberals and conservatives alike. Some of the most famous personalities in Unitarian Universalism were what? Whigs and Republicans. That's a fact. But again, in the modern era, we've evolved to be overwhelmingly liberal politically. Recent statistics show that we're nearly 90% politically liberal. Furthermore, we are increasingly vocal about political issues at the national level, which is also the source of some tension within our movement, locally and nationally. And so as the story goes, claiming ourselves as practitioners of a liberal religion, it began as a statement spoken by people suffering religious oppression. The first people to practice the religion that would one day become Unitarian Universalism were the Puritans those century-old immigrants to this nation who fled their homeland in search of a place where they'd be free to organize their religion around the very notion of freedom. Freedom to choose your own church, freedom to question, freedom from religious taxation, and freedom to choose the ministers they wanted to minister to their churches. But this is a point that has more to do with the way we organize our churches around congregational polity than it has to do with the tenets of our faith. I have this theory, it's sort of a grim, gross theory, but I'll go with it anyway. So I have this theory that if we could magically bring a Puritan back from the dead, just go with this, we've brought a Puritan back from the dead and we've invited this Puritan to come to church with us, I expect that what we would end up doing is giving that Puritan that we just raised from the dead a heart attack that sent them right back into the grave that took up... I don't think they would have any idea what was going on in our churches. I legitimately don't. Our spiritual ancestors were people plagued by religious oppression and religious persecution. But that is not a problem we face today. In fact, what is the greatest problem our churches face today? That's relevancy. 
the decline in church membership throughout the United States shows that religious participation is in fact accelerating with no discernible signs that that's going to slow down. And that's a sermon I'll preach about another day. So one of the late Forest Church's great insights about Unitarian Universalism is that our main issue, at least in his mind, our main issue changed from concerns about being bound to being near boundless without any concern at all. And it is this lack of definition that invites negotiation. I think it's fair to say that we are no longer bound by a common faith, per se. The tension about what Unitarian Universalism is and what it should be is evident even here at this church. I've been the minister of this church for a little while now, and so I hear what people tell me they think church primarily is or should be. I'm going to give you just a few examples of just the diversity of ideas at work in our own church. So some people here in this church, they tell me that they want this church to be primarily secular. Others have told me that they want me to bring back Christian communion services at least once a month. Others in church have hounded me and said, Brian, church should be called service. Other people have hounded me and said, church should be called worship. Some people tell me that church on Sundays actually is not the most important thing that we do at this church. What they want me to try to understand and accept is that actually the most important thing we do is our social events. But what's interesting about that statement is that while others say that our emphasis on social events is exclusionary, actually, and that our social events actually aren't welcoming to people who aren't married and upper middle class, and that it diverts from our need to spend more time together in prayer and worship. I'm not saying which side of those arguments I'm on. What I'm trying to do is to sum up that we are a diverse group of people with a very particular set and diverse set of spiritual, emotional, and religious wants and needs. Now, I think that this diversity is, in fact, a gift, but it's a gift that does not come easy. And it is this precisely where the principles rush in. So let's focus again on the first. It says, the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Now, you use disagree about a lot, but I have never seen them disagree about the idea that all people have worth and all people have dignity. And throughout history, we have seen that you use have strived for this principle by championing concepts like religious freedom, the abolition of slavery, women's suffrage, desegregation, and so on. The moral of this story is this. The first principle is not a description of how we think the world is. It is a statement about our attitude towards our work in the world. And that attitude requires a lot of emotional and spiritual effort. Living like this, it requires discipline. It requires practice, and it requires a community of people that help keep us accountable to one another. It also requires that you see the world through a particular moral lens. It requires that you be willing to live in tension between the world as it is with hatred, greed, and oppression, and the world we all long to see. Now, as lofty and wonderful as that goal is, believe it or not, it is this process, 
This attempt to accomplish moral perfection or to accomplish perfection in our world as we know it that is also now the source of yet another controversy in our movement. So on this topic, my colleague in Columbia, Missouri, the Reverend Molly House Gordon, she wrote something a few years ago about this desire to achieve moral perfection, and it's always stuck in my brain. I'm going to quote Molly here for a second. She wrote, quote, Our Unitarian forebearers' belief in the moral perfectibility of humankind evolved into a moral perfectionism that no longer allowed the admission of personal transgressions. Do you hear that? Our moral perfectibility, our belief in that, sort of absolved us from any kinds of responsibility we had for the state of the world, based on Molly's read. So the problem with this, as the argument goes, is that religion without accountability simply cannot work. Christianity, Buddhism, Alcoholics Anonymous, all of them and many other religious traditions, they demand that we take a moral inventory of ourselves and we be honest about what we find. If any of you have ever been in a recovery program, this is step four of step 12. This is when you do a moral inventory of yourself and you tell someone else what you found that was particularly baseless. So this practice invites us to throw off the masks we often wear that we wear to try and conceal our weaknesses. So Pastor Gordon's read of our history seems to suggest that our religious movement has difficulty admitting that for as much as we are inherently worthy, we are also inherently flawed that we can be selfish and we can be short-sighted, that we can be liars not only to others, but we can be liars to ourselves as well. Our ancestors, they called this fact of our human nature, they called it sin. Freud came along and he called it the ego. Psychologists came along and they call it impulses. I think that if we want our faith to be relevant, we have to own our sinfulness. We have to own our ego. We have to own our impulses. And I think what Pastor Gordon is attempting to do away with is the bootstrap mentality that is so attractive to American sensibilities. As admirable as this sensibility might be at times, it actually fails to acknowledge that some people's boots that they were born with, they didn't come with any straps at all. Nor does it acknowledge the fact that some of us, or rather all of us, at some point in our lives, we'll get knocked clean out of our boots. And in order to get back into them, we're not going to be able to put them back on. We're going to need people to help us do it. And finally, it fails to acknowledge that some people in this world really do not seem to be born with any boots at all. I want you to imagine something with me now. What if here at church we created and shared liturgies that made it safe to open up the floodgates of our vulnerability from time to time. Perhaps we discover that the void we feel in our hearts is the result of alienation from our neighbors. What if every once in a while you sat across from someone you've been coming to church with for decades and you admitted that I am often selfish and that I often put my self-interests before the needs of others? I have a theory that maybe we'd find ourselves wanting to apologize and get into right relationship with the people in our lives. 
I have a hunch that maybe it would instill in us a deeper commitment to acts of service that we say is our purpose. What if we thought of our church as a family in the classical sense, a place where we help one another get sober, a place where we help one another become better siblings and spouses and citizens? If you read through the archives of this church, one of the ideas that you will see over and over again is that all of us are people in need. People in need of friendship and forgiveness. People in need of accountability and purpose. Cyrus Yawkey, the rich benefactor of this great city, sat on the board of this church for decades. I think we'd all agree that Cyrus Yawkey was a man who wanted for nothing in terms of material possessions. But what you see Cyrus Yawkey write in the board minutes of this church over and over again is that every single one of us are people in need of grace. Every single one of us are people in need of love and accountability. This church was meant to be a place that rendered all things equal in the eyes of the divine. A Catholic priest friend of mine, he likes to say that the only way evil succeeds in the long run is if we disguise it as good or necessary or helpful. If we want to be part of the healing of the world our faith calls us to, we have to be willing to let go of the masks we wear that let us hide our shadow selves. In the reading from Matthew that I read from just a little bit earlier, what Jesus tells a congregation is that the only way we can defeat evil is by learning to see rightly. And what he means is this. He means that our task as people of faith is to learn to perceive ourselves in the world as it is truly. And what this means is that we're honest with ourselves and the people in our lives. And we do the necessary work of repair within and the necessary work of repair without. If we are to claim the first principle as the bedrock of our faith, then we have to prove it in the way we conduct our lives. We have to be willing to see ourselves in the eyes of a refugee, to see ourselves in the eyes of a prisoner, of the uneducated, of the loathsome. And we have to see ourselves in the actions of those who are greedy and powerful and selfish and violent. And when we are brave enough to see that, we still have to be willing to allow ourselves to be seen in the eyes of the other. This is the first principle in a nutshell. The question I want to leave you with is this. Are you brave enough to live it? Amen. And blessed be. Please join me in singing our closing hymn number 201. Glory, glory, hallelujah.
invite you, if you came to church with someone this morning, to take their hand. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Have a seat, relax, and enjoy the postlude, and I'll see you shortly.